and invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I'll go ahead and tell you where you can turn in your copy of God's Word. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter number 4. Galatians chapter number 4. We're going to be looking at a few uh, passage or a few verses there in that chapter. Particularly, we're going to look at verses 1 all the way down to verse 11. So we're in week three of our nine-part series called The Gospel-Centered Life. So if you're showing up here today and you're saying, hey, this is week three, should I just go ahead and step out? Is this like the, the sequel, the prequel, whatever it is? Um, no, it, it is, but it's, it's quite all right. You're, you're here at just the right time, trust me. Um, one of the reasons why I say that is we're going to spend a few minutes in review. We'll spend a few minutes in review. So we've been wrestling with this idea of the gospel-centered life. And it's my prayer as a pastor here at Hagerstown Church that each and every one of us would live truly a gospel-centered life. That our lives would find at its center the good news of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that we established a few weeks ago was that we need to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, with all clarity, what the gospel actually is. And so here it is. It should be on the screen for you this morning. The gospel is this. It's the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might say, this is the third week we've looked at that. Can we, can we get a new slide? No. <laughs> this is our life. Don't get tired of looking at it. We need to stay here at this definition, remembering it. But we'll move on. But carry this in your mind. It's the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you just walked in. You're saying, well, what, I don't even know what this means. Here, here's what it means. If you're broken, if you're tired of the this, of this sin that rules in your life and the inability that you have to choose another path to break the chains that are holding you down, if you, you see that your life has no meaning and you recognize that the wrath of God even burns against you because of the sin that you have incurred against him, there's good news that Jesus Christ, this, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, have created a way for you to be reconciled to God. That's good news. That's good news. And I hope that we're always a church that is marked by that, that definition. I hope that we're always a people, that we're always individuals, that we're always families that find this at our core our center. And what would that look like? Well, here's what it would look like. It's, it's what is the gospel-centered life. Again, here's another definition we've looked at many times. It's the continual rediscovery of these three truths, that God is more holy than you can imagine, that you are more sinful than you realize, and that the cross is more powerful than you know. And our hope that as we live a life that's considered the gospel-centered life, that it would continually spread apart, that we continually see God as more holy than we thought of him yesterday. That we, not that he would become more holy, not that he would become more set apart, that, that our feeble eyes would be opened and that we would see him more clearly. And as that happens, we would begin to see ourselves as even more sinful and not just be worried about the outward sins that we commit, but that, that through the holiness of God and the greatness of God, we'd be able to see even more the secret sins in our hearts and that we would be clearly seeing the root of the sinfulness that's deep in our hearts. That we wouldn't stay there Remember, we wouldn't stay there crushed and discouraged by the fact that God is so holy and we are so not holy. 
but that we would embrace the, the message of the gospel, which is that the cross is more powerful than we know. And as God continues to reveal more sin in our lives, we would, we would ask ourselves, does the cross cover that sin as well? And we would say, yes. Because as God is more holy and we are more sinful, the cross is more powerful. And then we say it the next day, but what about this? Does the cross cover this? Can the cross of Christ atone for this sin? Yes. Can the cross of Christ transform me from this sin? Yes. Yes, it can. This is the gospel-centered life. And so this is what our, our prayer is as pastors of this church. As church members, this is what we want. But last week we came across one of the problems that we face as we live this Christian life. And it's in pretending and performing pretending and performing. And so I want to throw one of those slides up there for you as well. There we go. Look at that. Pretending is minimizing our sinfulness by thinking that we are better than we really are. Minimizing our sinfulness by thinking we are better than we really are. So what happens is we see our sin and we begin to be afraid and we think, well, I don't know that God can actually cover that. And even if he could, his church would not be able to to look the other way. They wouldn't be able to forgive me. They wouldn't be able to get that out of their mind if they knew these things about me. And so we begin to pretend that we're actually not as bad as we really are. And what that does is it stifles the gospel-centered life. It stifles all growth. The same is true of performing. Instead of covering up, we're like, well, hey, let's try to do better on our own. Let's try to make it easier for God to save us. Let's make it easier for God to transform us. And on our own, we will pursue holiness. And so performing is minimizing God's holiness by thinking we can obtain it through our own effort. So this expanse, the separation between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of, uh, of man or your own sinfulness, you see the cross of Christ and you say, yes, but the cross of Christ will only reach so far. I'd like to make it easy on it easy on God and so what I'm going to do is I'll perform and I'll I'll make up the difference he he needs it to happen that way and both of these feeble options are attempts to get back into the garden if you will they're attempts to restore what's been lost to span the gap again that that's between God and you See, God created man in his own image. He placed him in the garden, but our first father sinned against God, and he plunged the human race into sin. And ever since, each and every one of us, from the first unto the last, we've searched for both a new identity and a new righteousness outside of the garden and outside of Christ. We've searched for a new identity, and we've searched for a new righteousness. And it's that in the heart of each and every one of you. you say, well, you don't even know me, Pastor. Well, I, I don't have to know you. I don't mean to say that I don't care to. I want to know you. But I don't have to know you to know that these things are true about each and every one of us, that we are searching for a new identity and we are searching for a new righteousness. I'm going to talk about identity first. It's perhaps most clearly seen in us, and it's a bit cliche, but it's perhaps most clearly seen in us around the time of middle school. We want to identify with a crowd. We want to know who we are. We want to know that we have meaning and a place, and we want to know uh, what it is. Who is this Josh? So there's countless options. This might seem so simple, but there, it's true. There's countless options. You can try to be the athlete. You can try to be the prep. You can try to be the cheerleader, the nerd, the cowboy, and I could go on and on. I, I realize that stereotypes are, are, are weak, but at the same time, 
We create stereotypes for a reason. We like them. We like to know who it is that we are to be, whether we're the, the Jeep guy. We're, we're, it's a Jeep thing. We want to be a part of that. That's the stereotype. We want to do exactly what Jeep folks do. Be, maybe something else. Maybe you want to be the, the dog guy. Maybe you want to be the, the guy with a nice yard. This is your identity. You see, I'm just like them. I'm the, I'm the homeschool family. I got lots of kids, and we do this. That, and I do all the things. I look online to see, like, exactly how do people do this? Maybe you're going to be the beard guy. And you're like, well, how do I, okay, I'm going to be the beard guy. Well, don't even try. You're not going to. Anthony's got us all beat. So there's no point in even trying. But if you did try, you'd say, what do beard guys do? And so then you begin looking online, and then when you see someone with a beard guy, you're like, hey, that's, these are my people. This is, this is, my, this is my kind of guy. So we find some, sorts of, some sense of identity. To feel, we want to feel normal. We want to feel like we're a part of something. Maybe, maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you say, well, I'm not really a, a stereotype kind of a guy. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever taken a personality test? We love to know about ourselves, don't we? We want to learn more about ourselves. We want to know about our identity. We're searching, who am I? Well, I remember one time, actually the first time that I ever took a legit personality test, like not which, Sky, or which Skywalker are you or which like, member of the MCU universe are you. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about a real paid personality test, a real legit company, and they send you a packet and you fill all these answers, and then they send you a packet back that says, hey, this is who you are. Uh, I, I remember the first time that that ever took place. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what's, what's happening. Oh. Okay. Um, wow. I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> and then I got a flashlight. I can, I can speak from that. I remember the first time I took a personality test. And uh, it, it was really shocking to me. Sarah and I, we read the, the answers. And they were like, okay, this is who you are. And in this situation, this is the way that you act. And Sarah and I were like, oh, my goodness. We started getting kind of like, like the chill bumps. Like, this, they must really know me. And then it was like, well, this, in this situation, this is a characteristic that you have. And when you deal with these types of people, this is how you react. And we were just, again, blown away. We were either like just in shock and awe or, or just like in a nervous laughing we didn't know what to think. It was entirely accurate. And I began to think, Sarah and I were both shocked. We were encouraged and amazed. But at the same time, in my heart, you know what I began to think? I know. I think I found my people. This is who I really am. This is my, these are my letters. I am a blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to tell you who I am because you'll research it and I'm not going to do it. But I remember thinking, I had found my true identity and I thought, you know what felt so good about it? There was this thing that you could go online and you could type in those four letters and say, it would say, famous people just like you. And I'm like, all right, let's check it out. So I did it. And so I did kind of get sucked into the whole thing. Apparently Han Solo is just like me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but I began to find out like, hey, there are people literally just like me. And I began to like find this sense of identity, which actually gave way to this search for righteousness, or maybe I would, you could say it this way, for validity. This is also part of the thing that we search for as human beings. We want to know our identity. We want to know who we are, whose we are, what we're a part of. But we also want to know if we have validity, if we have this righteousness. 
So we're all actively searching for that. And by the way, one flows out of the other. Righteousness, in a sense, really flows from identity. The validation, it, it, we, 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 seem, we sense that it comes from within. And so because I'm an athlete, I have a value of this amount. Or because I'm intelligent, or because I'm more intelligent than this person or that person, then we find our, our righteousness there. We, we talked about this last week. This search really is, it's not profitable. It never ends well. We end up coming up short. If we search for it in possessions, we get them, and then we find out that that's actually meaningless. If we search for morality or the law and, and righteousness by that, we always end up coming up short. If we look for our own physical strength, whether it be emotionally or, or even physically, literally physically, then we recognize that it fails us. The quest for identity and righteousness, it's an exhausting one, but it's still, it's the, it's the pathway of each and every one of us that are outside of the garden, if you will, and, aside, and apart from Christ. What happens is, then we, we, we see this, we see that we need this identity and we don't really like who we are, that we're broken, that we're sinful, we see that we don't have righteousness, and so what do we, what do, we do? Well, what we talked about last week. We begin to pretend that we've got it all together. We begin to pretend like we don't need any help in that area and that we're okay. And we don't actually have as much sin as we really do. And so we pretend and we perform. So last week, in a sense, I smacked your hand and said, don't do that. Don't pretend. Don't perform. Don't do it. And you say, but Pastor Josh, as I look at the cross of Christ, as I look at the word of God, I see the holiness of God, and I think, I, I can't measure up. And then you say, Pastor Josh, and additionally, after that happens, I begin to see my own sinfulness, and I really have no, nothing but just desperation. I, I can't stand to be laid bare in the wrath of God before me. And I say, well, what about the cross of Christ? And you say, yes, but it's not quite big enough. I need to pretend, and I need to perform. I would argue with you that that's not the steps that we should take, but that the cross of Christ actually is sufficient not only to cover our sin, to give us and provide us righteousness, but also to give us a new identity. Amen. And so I ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Let's look at that together. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 we'll read in just a minute but before we do let me give just a little bit of background so in Galatians 3 the apostle Paul he, he basically reviews that the last 2,000 years of, of Old Testament history he kind of walks through them and uh, picks some important things out that we need to know about specifically he points out the connection between the three guys here Abraham Moses and Jesus Christ okay he explains how God gave Abraham a promise to bless all the families of the earth through his children, through his seed. And how he then gave Moses a law which didn't, uh, didn't annul the promise. It actually uh, made it even more necessary and urgent. What, what took place in the garden was going to be undone through the seed of Abraham. And then the law of Moses just makes it even more urgent and necessary. Because as we try to pursue our own righteousness, our own identity apart from Christ, and in the law, we always end up coming up short. But then he also talks about the promise fulfilled in Christ. So that everyone, 
to, to, for whom the, the law drives to Christ inherits the promise of God through the seed of Abraham. So then in chapter four, uh, four Paul repeats the same history again, but this time he, he contrasts man's condition under the law, which is verses one through three, and he can contrast that with his condition when he's in Christ, which is verses four through seven. And from there he draws this conclusion that we're going to look at in just a minute. It's a conclusion for the life of a Christian. This is what he says, basically, once we were slaves, now we are sons, how then can we turn back to the old slavery. Once, once you were slaves, now you are sons. How then can we turn back to the old slavery? And so let's read that with that little bit of background. Let's, let's look at the text. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hopefully it's on the screen for you. This is what the Word of God says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers... Until the day set by his father, date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature that are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by Him, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves that you want to be one more, once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. God, there is no power in the things that I have to say this morning. We also recognize that there is a need in this room. Father, there's hearts that need to be broken. There's sin that needs to be convicted of. There's hearts that need to be encouraged, hands that need to be strengthened, and that I can do in my own power. Nor just in the gathering of a group of people, unless it was based on your word. And so that's what we've done this morning. We've gathered in hopes that you would speak to us through your word. So we ask that you do just that now. That you work on our hearts. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in these verses, Paul uh, allows us to see the difference between a child and a servant. And so there's not much. Now, let me explain. A, a child may be an heir. They may be in line to inherit all that the father has. But when he's young, b- before he's come of age, he practically has the same rights as the neighbor kid. Right? You kind of understand that. In your own family, I don't know what the dynamic was, but you might look around one day and think, hey, one day, this will all be mine. This broken down couch, that car that doesn't run, that stack of vases over there in the cupboard, all mine. You recognize that. So different, though, in the life of uh, in the first century, 
a Roman citizen or a Greek citizen, all the things that they had, they could pass that on if they didn't have a blood relative or a, a son that was of their own. They could then adopt, bring in a slave or, if you will, a servant and legally make them their own. But in the same way, whether that was the, your case or whether you were a blood child of your father, it didn't matter. When you're a child, you're just a child. You have no rights. You have no say. When we were young, we were slaves to sin, Paul says. We were managed by the elementary principles of this world, verse 3 says. What are those principles? The principles that, that governed us, that in a sense kept rule over us. What were they? They were the elementary principles. They were the principles that lie at the foundation of really all religions, save Christianity. These elementary principles lie at the base of Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, fill in the blank. Each and every one of those have the elementary principles at their base. And what are they? They're pretending and performing. It lies at the heart of each and every religion, every pathway to God, if you will, except the only pathway that's real. But all this was done away with when, when, why? When, when Jesus came. I wanted to give you guys a, an explanation of what adoption is. And so I want to throw that up on the screen for you. Verse 5 talks about this idea of adoption. It's to legally declare that someone who is not your own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. To legally declare that someone who is not your own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. And so as we look at this text, recognize this, before we walk through it, recognize this, that in Christ, we have the opportunity to be adopted in to the family of God. And that speaks both to our identity and our it speaks to humanity and to our righteousness. So let's begin to walk through this text a little bit here. Look at verse number four. It says that God sent his son, verse number four. That's a neat testimony, really, to the pre-incarnate state of Jesus Christ. Before his coming to earth to fulfill the Father's will of redemption, he existed eternally in fellowship with the Father. God sent his son. He didn't become God's son at Advent. No, he was eternally God's son. He is eternally God's son. And by the way, that same verb that is used of Jesus, God sending the son, the same verb is used of the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful Trinitarian passage. Galatians chapter 4. We see God sending the son and sending the spirit in verse 6. But anyway, God sent his son. What did he send him to do? To, to redeem those who were lost, to redeem the elect. Verse number four goes on to say he, that he was born of a woman. Jesus was born as a man so that he could identify with us. He was not only born of a woman, speaking of the, the, the virgin birth, becoming a man, 100% man, but also it says that he was under the law, which is to say that the demands of the law of God also applied to Jesus. He didn't get a free pass. 
He didn't get to come down here like Bruce Almighty and just do whatever he wants to do. That's not what happened here. Jesus was born of a woman, and he was born under the law. And of course, we know this. He would be scrutinized by the same law that we would be held to. But of course, he would what? He would fulfill the law. And so that he was born as a man under the law sets the stage for his both passive and active righteousness that we looked at a few weeks ago. All that would be displayed as he redeemed the elect. Look down at verse number 5. It says, to redeem. Christ achieved the purpose of redeeming those under the law by bearing the full obligation of the law in life as well as the curse of the law in death. Again, that speaks to our substitutionary atonement. It speaks to the, to the, 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 the doubleness of our righteousness, both that our sinfulness, not our righteousness, but our, our sinfulness would be placed on Christ and his righteousness would be placed on us. And all of this makes possible what happens in verse 5, that there would be adoption made possible. So again, in Greek and Roman culture, when a man had no son, he was permitted to adopt an heir. Even though they weren't related, he, he, he might choose, if, if he wanted to, to adopt one of his own slaves, somebody in his own house. Maybe somebody that had moved up in the ranks. And that adopted son, he would take the name of the father, he would take the name of the family, and in every respect, he would be treated as a son. After that adoption, he would no longer be a slave. He wouldn't just be somebody that, that was a resource and not a guiding force. But after the adoption, they would literally have the privilege of addressing their master, former master, now as father. Why? Because their identity had changed. Because their identity at, at its core had changed. Notice that that God's purpose in Christ was both to redeem and to adopt. Not just to, as we looked at two weeks ago, not just to save us from our sin, but to give us righteousness. It wasn't just to redeem us, but it was also to adopt us. It wasn't just to rescue us from slavery, but it was to make us into sons, sons and daughters. So those who are in Jesus Christ, who have been adopted into the family of God, they they don't need to search for identity any longer. We don't have to wonder who we are. So many of us, we enjoy looking at our own genealogies, don't we? It's fun. We like to know who we are. We like to know of our heritage and our history. There's a huge market for that at this point in time. And so I'm not discouraging you from doing that. That's, that's a wonderful thing that you can give to your, your children and even to yourself. But I'm going to go ahead and steal a little bit of the glory here and give it to God. You're never going to find, it doesn't matter what, who you find out that you're related to. It doesn't matter what you find out your, your crest represents or how your people conquered this or liberated this or did whatever good. It doesn't matter. You're never going to find anything greater, Christian, than to find out that you are a child of God. That is the greatest thing. That's the greatest piece of information that you can receive in relation to your identity. That you've been adopted. That your identity has been remade and recovered. 
But you're not only welcomed into the family of God, but you also become an heir. Look at verse 7. It says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What's an heir? It's legally the son inherits all that the father has. He inherits all the rights, all the benefits of the father are given to that new son. Again, this is, this is where we see the connection between identity and righteousness. It's made clear here. Those who are the sons of God, what do they have? They have the righteousness of Christ. We are, we are the sons and daughters of God, those who are in Christ, and we have the righteousness of Christ. Think about this idea of adoption our identity, our new identity, and the fact that we inherit righteousness, our relationship with our new father, does it not just roll over in gratitude in your heart? Or create a stirring and a longing for what you don't have? Tim Keller once said this, and I I really enjoyed it. He said, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. The only person who would dare to wake up a king at 3 a.m. asking for a glass of water is a child. If you think about it now, we, once slaves, have the, the privilege, and I would argue even the responsibility, to go to our Father not because of our own righteousness, not because of anything that we have done, but according to his mercy, according to the cross of Christ. Since the garden, mankind has been looking for these two things, identity and righteousness. And they correlate well with with this picture that we find in in adoption. In Christ, we have our identity secured. We have our righteousness supplied. And how is it? How does it happen? It happens through the cross of Christ. It spans the gap. So here's that point. The cross is more powerful than you know. The cross is more powerful than you know. So this is the big, the big point of the day. We have been adopted as Christians into the family of God. But that doesn't answer the question necessarily then. Or maybe it, maybe it doesn't for you. You still say, but I still feel the need to pretend. I still feel the need to perform. What am I to do as a result of these truths? There's got to be some action to take. How do you live the gospel-centered life, you say, Pastor? How do I experience power in my life? I understand these truths You've told them to me. I've heard them before. I'm adopted. I'm an heir. I receive Christ's righteousness. I can access the Father. I understand all these things. But at the end of the day, I don't feel like there's any power in my life. Maybe you say, I I see my sinfulness even greater as I see his holiness. And I want to experience the power of the gospel in my life, but I don't know what to do. I want to give you two things this morning. Really one thing. And that's to believe. It's to believe. You say, what am I to do? Not pretend, not perform. No, none of those things. What are you to do? Believe. What are you to believe? I'll, I'll tell you two things. One, 
believe that he forgives. Believe that he forgives. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. There's a, a thousand passages, quite literally, that I right now, but we'll just look at this one here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, all this aside, nailing it to the cross. And so what are we to believe as Christians? What are we to believe when we see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man? We are to believe that he forgives sin. Big sins? Yes. Little sins? Yes. Repetitive sins? Yes. Sins that have overtaken you, that you've given yourself to for years upon years upon years upon years. It says, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and he canceled the record of debt that stood against it, that correlated with the sin that then we incurred, he took that out of the way. He canceled it. He set it aside. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he paid for all of our sin, all the sin of the elect, all the sin of those who turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. Every instance of treasuring sinfulness, every lie, every theft, every instance of ingratitude, those things, he paid for those, were forgiven of those? Yes. This is the righteousness of Christ. He takes our sinfulness. He gives us his righteousness. And for some of you, it may seem like you're being prideful. I'm sorry, humble. That you would think, I don't know that God can forgive me of my sin. I don't really know. It may be outside of the bounds of what he's capable of doing or willing to do. And you have this humility about yourself. Recognize this. It's not humility. When God says, I forgive all sin that is confessed, all the, I forgive all the sin of those who do confess, and you say, no, that's not true. You can't cover this. I don't think that you're willing. Well, it's not humility, it's pride. It's pride. You're, you're too great for God. You know better than God. You're offering, offering a correction to what God says. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's two things that you're to believe this morning in connection with this idea of adoption. One is that God forgives sins. Some of you are struggling to believe that this morning. Maybe you're not even, you would say, I'm not even a Christian because I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if I can actually say that, that God would forgive my sin. If that's you here this morning, I want to encourage you to believe the words of Christ, to believe the words of the Father, of the book. He says he will forgive. Believe it. You say, well, I've, I've never come to him because I don't think that he would. Believe that he will. You say, well, I've come to him before and I've asked for forgiveness, but now there's more sins that I've committed since then. I don't know. I think that he's now rescinded that forgiveness. He's placed that, that debt back on me because of the sins that I've committed afterwards. That's, that's not the truth. It says that all sin is canceled. 
And that all of our unrighteousness was placed on Christ. All of the righteousness that he would give to us would be placed on us. And so if that's you here this morning, you say, I just don't know if I can believe that. That's the work. What, what else can you do? Can you perform? No, don't. It's worthless. It's damning. Can you pretend it's the same? Believe that he will forgive sin. But don't just believe that he will forgive. Also believe that he will transform. Also believe that he will transform. This is another, this is another part. For some of us, it's easy to believe. We've heard it since we were children. We, it's easy for us to believe as we look at the cross that God will forgive us of our sins, but we, we stop there. And we forget that he, so often, that he doesn't just forgive us of our sins, but that he also will transform us. That he will also make us new. That he will not just call us new, but that he will reshape us into something new. There will, there will be a new you in Christ. The Bible teaches that in addition to confessing sin and seeking God's forgiveness, that you need to pursue God's powerful, transforming grace by believing the good news and walking in faith and obedience to the gospel. And so God, he pardons and he forgives, but he also transforms. He gives you the power to live differently. He changes you. Romans chapter 6, verse number 4. If you're taking notes, write that passage down. You're going to want to go back and look at it this week. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christian baptism pictures several things. One of the key things that it pictures is that we die in Christ. We're baptized with Christ into his death. And so there's a symbol there. There's a picture there for us. But we don't stay dead we don't leave people as Baptists under the water. What do we do? Well, the picture has to be completed. They're risen. They come up from the dead, up out of the grave by the glory of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, so that what? So that we too can walk in newness of life. This is pictured in baptism. So you can have this. You can have a transformed life. Just as you believe that your sins are forgiven, believe that your life will be transformed, that you have been given the power to walk in newness of life. You just have to believe this. Not on your own power. This is not some new age nonsense. Better you, take a couple personality tests, stuff like that, whatever. Try to be a better person. Find your true self. No, in, in, in and of yourself, you you'll become a new person. Turn over a new leaf. This is unbiblical. We have to believe that through the power of the resurrected Lord that we too can walk in newness of life. And so we believe that we're forgiven. That's the work that we have to do. Believe. Place our faith. Literally, place our faith that the sins that we've committed against the holy God will be atoned for and have been atoned for by Christ's work his week of his passion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But don't just believe that. Believe also that he that has begun a good work will complete it in your life. And that he will truly make you a new creation, a new creature. This is the power of the transformed life. At the beginning of Sarah and I's marriage, she's squirming right now. But at the beginning of our marriage, it was financially a difficult time for us. 
And uh, you might say, well, uh, what was the problem? Well, we made a little bit of money and we made a lot of mistakes. Okay? Hopefully it would have been the other way around, but it wasn't. A little bit of money, a lot of mistakes. And my financial status, it hadn't changed much from the time that I was in college. Just hoping I could get my bills paid and, and not be uh, kicked out of school. That was my hope. Well, one day, several uh, years into marriage, um, I had a realization. I don't know how I had forgotten it. But since I had moved and changed cars and changed roommates, uh, now that I was married, um, I, I remembered, oh, I had a bank account when I was in college. It was a credit union, and it was in a town that I don't currently live in, nor did I live in for the last four years. I thought, well, I wonder, is there any money in that account? I'd been carrying around that card or then it had been put in my sock drawer for maybe a year and a half now, but I had that realization, and I began to be curious, and so I, I called the bank, and I inquired about the status of my account, and they said I owed them a lot of money. I'm just kidding. No, they said, hey, this is, you actually have some good news. You actually have several hundred dollars in your account. And I thought, you're kidding me. All the times that we went without, poor pitiful us, all the times that we didn't have what we needed to have when we make, made big mistakes and little money, all this time I had a card. I had access to something that literally would have been life-changing. It wasn't that much. But the point I hope you see, I was so used to being broke, I had forgotten about the money that was in my account. I had forgotten about that resource that had been afforded to me some time before. Countless times I could have used that money, but I didn't even believe that I had it. I didn't believe that I had access to it. I didn't believe that that card was any value to me. Is it possible, Christian, that you never swipe the card of transforming grace in your life because you don't believe that it, it works? Is it possible that you've somehow shrunk the, the power of that account in your life, the cross of Christ, because you just think it's not big enough? It's not powerful enough. It can't do it. What of your identity in Christ? What of his righteousness extended to you? As we come to a close, consider this. This is a good test. How crushing would it be if you found out that you were failing as an employee, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, and in every area of life? How crushing would that be? Do you see that regardless of any success or failure that you have on any and all levels that God the Father accepts, forgives, and transforms all who come to him by faith in Jesus. Consider this, as we talked about last week. When the Father thinks of you, what face is he making? What face does he make when he thinks of you? We have to believe both. We have to believe that the, the power that forgives sin is the same power that transforms our lives. When we embrace the, the righteousness of Christ, we find in adoption, seeing our sin is not scary or even embarrassing. 
When we remember our spiritual adoption, the infinite standard of God's holiness, it's no longer fearful or intimidating. And so my call to you this morning is this, that you believe, that you rest in his righteousness and your new identity in Christ. That's my prayer for the gospel-centered life here at Hagerstown Church. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, again, your holiness this morning. In faith, we believe, I believe, that we as your people see you in a fresh and clear way this morning, less dimly, eyes more open, and as a result, we see ourselves more sinful. And yet, by your grace, you've revealed that we are pretending, many of us, in, in many ways, and we're performing. And so maybe we confess that. Maybe we re- re- repent of minimizing the power of the cross. And we truly believe that you are willing and ready to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us and to transform us. And we ask that this would be on our minds and our hearts throughout this week. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.